where are we going to uh, is what I want to talk about and more importantly the steps that are involved in getting there. So what I'm talking about is full-time paid ministry be it ordained or unordained, be it overseas or here in Australia, be it in this denomination, that denomination or no denomination, uh, how do you get from where you are at the moment to full-time paid ministry? That's the, what are the steps that are involved? And the first part I think you do is need to understand about ministry. So let me look at a couple of Bible passages, not that I'm going to spend much time explaining them, but just to remind us, and then there's a couple of things on the PowerPoints to uh, talk about understanding ministry, and then the steps that we go through, and then we'll come to uh, questions. Um, in fact, I might get the questions up front so that we can, so after I've read a couple of passages from the scriptures, I'm going to ask you your questions and to ask uh, so that I get some better feel as to what is you want to know rather than me telling you what you need to know and not actually answering what you need to know. All right? So we'll read a couple of passages of scriptures about ministry, then I'll ask the questions, then we'll talk about understanding ministry, then we'll go through some of my steps and we'll go through some of your questions. The classic passages on ministry are passages like 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, go for the Titus 1 1 uh, first. I don't actually believe this is about the ministry, but that's alright. You can believe what you want to believe, just because you're wrong doesn't matter to me particularly. Um, uh, we, we all have different um, denominational traditions we're coming from here. And I am not setting out the Anglican one, uh, nor am I setting out the Presbyterian one or the Reformed. I'm just I'm trying to tell you what the Bible's saying, and you can translate into your particular form. Because unlike some of you, I don't believe that any of the forms we have today is what the Bible was talking about. I think we all make adjustments to fit in with our particular tradition. Uh, it's just some of us are more honest about it than others. And so in Titus 1, this is why I left you in Crete verse 5, so that you might, be, uh, you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone above is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There, there is... The person that Timothy is to be appointing as an elder and the word elder is used interchangeably with overseer uh, and so the word in elder in the Greek is presbyter the word overseer is episkopos and so a presbyter an episkopos but of course those are not English words they're just words that have transliterated the, 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 the letters Presbyteros, you just turn the letters into English letters, presbyter, but you haven't translated the word. The word actually means elder. 
Uh, likewise, episkopos is just the letters change. The word means an overseer. You'll see the character of what you're looking for, what Titus is to look for, is the character of genuine Christian faith and behaviour. There's not a great list there of skills, of abilities, of aptitudes, of gifts. That's not what lies at the heart of it. But that he's godly and living a godly life. I mean, the main gift skill that he's spoken of is that he, he's able to give instruction. So he, 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 but the key to being able to give instruction is not so much that he's very articulate, but that he has such a firm hold on the trustworthy words as taught that he's able to give instruction. However, this I don't take it is the paid minister. This is the elders of the congregation uh, that we're talking of here. The, these are the, if anything, the lay leaders of the congregation. Uh, the elder, the, the kind of paid minister that is today a paid minister, I think is much more like Titus himself, uh, like Timothy himself like Epaphroditus, uh, Silas, the people who travelled with Paul and lived from the ministry of the gospel they were engaged in and were involved in the appointing of the elders in the particular churches. Now, I'm just telling you that not because I want to persuade you to that point of view, but so that you know where I'm coming from, right? So that you might understand. I. But if this is what is required of the lay leadership of the church, you can't have less than this required for the paid ministers of the church. This has got to be at least minimum requirements that is involved in what we have in paid ministers. If you go to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, the first verse of Philippians was the verse that took the committee that translated the ESV the longest to translate. Uh, I'm, for, for my sins was on the consulting board or something or other of the ESV. We never, we never met it and, and uh, I, I rarely was consulted. But <laughs> I got a free dinner out of it when I was passing through Cambridge because the committee was at work in Cambridge at the time and so I had dinner with them. So a free dinner is a free dinner. And I met some very lovely and interesting people. But the verse they told me, the publisher is a good friend of mine, told me, the verse they had the greatest difficulty with was verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, a first-year Greek student would be able to translate that verse. But the great experts of the world gathered together had difficulty with it. Why? Because they all came from different denominational backgrounds, and so the word overseer and the word deacon means completely different things in different contexts. And so do we translate overseer as, as bishop? Well, that will get all kinds of people's noses out of joint, wouldn't we? And if you translate, so they work for overseers there, because what a bishop is or what a bishop isn't, well, not even the bishops know. <laughs> but deacon... Well, a Baptist deacon is a completely different deacon to an Anglican deacon. Totally different, got no connection at all. But if we put the word deacon in there, we'll all feel good that it's us, you see? <laughs> so we can have the word there. But it's about the only time they ever translated the word deacon, deacon, because the word just means servant. That, that's a diakonos, it's an everyday word for servant that has got no religious connotations particularly at all, but is now here put in. 
And are the overseers and the deacons the overseers and deacons of the church that he's writing of? Or is it just the kind of elders and the, and the deacons, the servants in society that he's talking of? Well, it, the problem is not the translation in one sense. The problem is us. <laughs> because we have created a monster called the church and our particular denomination. And we're all desperate to prove that ours is the true one. And so we've got to get the, the Bible to say what we say so that we're lined up. And when you're in a non-denominational committee, like the one that translated this Bible, they couldn't settle on it. Well, they did, but after huge fights. <laughs> Let me tell you in Philippi, Philipp, Philippians, though, where you'll see the paid minister. And I think you learn a lot more about the paid minister if you look across to chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord to send you Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now they are the ministers of the gospel. They're classic ministers. Epaphroditus is one of the loveliest minor characters in the Bible. One of my daughters wanted to call her son Epaphroditus. Uh, we thought in an average Australian school the boy would have problems <laughs> on Epaphroditus. But, I mean, you can shorten it just to Epaphras, but, you know, Epaphras wouldn't work. In it. Sorry, is anybody called Epaphroditus here? <laughs> just need to check. But, you know, to go to school and be called Paffy would not really work all that much. But she was right, because of all the Bible characters, Epaphroditus, there's nothing negative ever said about him. He really was a lovely man. But what was his loveliness? It was the same loveliness as Timothy. They laid down their life for the sake of other people. For the souls of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would do anything. And it's all about relationships. It's not about office. It's not about official title. It's about serving the Lord Jesus Christ and serving his people. The word ministry means service. That, that's what it's about. It's about being a servant. But these are the ones whose service is such that they are paid for it. They live off their service. Um, mind you, they nearly die living off their service. That is, the Lord Jesus, when he encourages people into ministry, never encourages them in by telling them about the superannuation benefits and the retirement scheme and the housing allowances and the fringe benefit deductions that you can It's never in those terms. It's always in terms of, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. Whoever will deny me, I will deny, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels, and woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for such they do of the false prophets, and blessed are you when men persecute you, revile you, and hate you for my sake. The invitation is always an invitation to the cross. It's never an invitation to glory, because the nature of Christian ministry is the cross. It's serving. It's laying down your life for other people. There is the nature of it. And Timothy Epaphroditus are wonderful examples. And that little passage, most people don't talk about in terms of ministry, but that's much more really what it's about than the 1 Timothy and the Titus, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 passage, which tells you minimum requirements necessary for lay eldership, let alone people who are going to be paid by the congregations to do this ministry. All right, there is a little bit of theological background to where I'm coming from, which I'm happy for you to disagree with at this stage of the game, if you must, but that's not really what we're going to be talking about so much. I just want you to know where I'm coming from. But what are the questions that coming to this seminar you want answered or comments that you want to make? So that I can just make sure that by the end of the time we've covered the question that actually was burning on your heart and mind. And I don't really care what it is. It can be about calculus for all I care. Any question I don't have an answer for, I bluff. So, what would you like to know? Which system of church government is closest? <laughs> 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 yes, <laughs> the most wrong, yes. <laughs> I love uh, Calvin, especially as a commentator. He's one of the great commentators of the Bible, and uh, Calvin is just terrific. But on Titus 1, he's hopeless. <laughs> he, because he's fighting against Rome, he says that what Titus is to do to appoint elders is to hold a church meeting and elect, hold an election. Well... I've looked at Titus 1 many times, but I don't see anywhere about holding meetings and elections. It, it just, yeah. If there's an area which we get it really wrong consistently, it's church government. Rome's the worst, though, yes. I've got the feeling as to where we're going. Let me go back to ministry itself. Some of the things I'm saying, I'm not going to answer those questions at all. Some of them, I will remember them and go to them. And then after I've been through a lot of this stuff, I'll go back and work through the ones that I haven't somehow covered in and you can tell me what other things needed to. Let's go down the ministry track first, though, with understanding the minister. So uh, a series of PowerPoints that I worked out for a different conference uh, and so bringing to you now, but I can't remember them well enough to do them from the back of my head, so I'm going to actually have to turn around to remember what's on them. But the minister, yeah, I'll do that. That'll be just easy, won't it? The minister, uh, okay, it's all right. Um, but I need to get out of your way. The, to understanding the minister, the first thing that you think of and notice is, yes, is their competencies. What they can do, what they can't do, what you've got to be able to do, what you haven't got to be able to. But actually, the competencies don't make the minister. The thing that makes the minister is the next slide, which is the knowledge of God. It's from the knowledge of God that the minister uses his competencies. But the knowledge of God is where you start from, 
rather than the competencies where you start from. But most people in thinking about, you know, should I go into ministry, shouldn't I, what, who should go into ministry, you say, well, he can do X, Y, Z. That, that's an irrelevance. It's knowledge of God which creates. Because if you look inside a minister, what you see is a interaction between, next one, yes, convictions and character. That is, your knowledge of God creates within you certain convictions about the truth, about life, about reality, about whatever else is. And those convictions shape your character. But your character also shapes your convictions. It's a, it's a feedback system between convictions and character. Because you're not just a doer, a hearer of the word, you've got to be a doer of the word. And it's in doing the word that you understand the word. And in understanding the word, you then know how to do the word. And so there's this constant feedback between character and convictions that flow from the knowledge of God. And it's in that context that your competencies make some sense. See, most people see their competencies from the next slide. That is their gifts and aptitudes and abilities. But your gifts and aptitudes and abilities must be tied back into the knowledge of God. Thank you, next one. Not your competencies, but into your convictions and character. It's called 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. Uh, it doesn't matter which gifts you have. If you haven't got love, they're totally useless. And so we don't jump from, oh, he's got these wonderful gifts. Look at his competencies. Let's ordain him. That is the, that is the disaster track. I said ordain. The same thing happens in terms of he's the youth leader. Look, all the young people love him. They follow him everywhere. So we'll appoint him. And he, like the Pied Piper, will take them out of town. And you don't know where they go because you haven't appointed the person who's got the convictions and character right, to use their gifts and aptitudes with the right competencies. So competencies are right, but competencies must be cradled in convictions and character which comes from the knowledge of God. I think that's where it finishes, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, here are the key competencies that we need. Three Ps. Prayer, proclamation and people. They're the three key competencies of every minister. Uh, prayer, proclamation and people. You've got to be a people person because it's a people work. Right? The, the person who might be very prayerful uh, and might actually be able to explain the gospel very accurately, but who has no emotional intelligence to connect with anybody, is not going to be able to do the job. And the person who's really a people person, but can't explain the gospel, and the person who can explain the gospel is a real people person, but never prays about it, they're the three that all three are needed in Christian ministry to do the work that we're talking about. So, you find the person, or you yourself are that person, then how do you get from sitting in the pew to the mission field? Uh, my experience at uh, New South Wales University, where I was for many years, is I would meet a student and see them as the potential for missionary work, and I would farewell them into the mission field roughly 10 years later took genuinely that long. That's because I believe in doing the job properly. I mean, you can infuse an 18-year-old to drop out of university and head off to Uzbekistan, uh, but 
you won't get the gospel to Uzbekistan and you will be picking up the pieces of the 19 year old when he comes back a complete neurotic mess I and mean, that's that is irresponsible pastoring really uh, the work of the gospel is a lifelong work or until the Lord Jesus returns so therefore I believe in proper training full training and I don't believe in short missionary service, I believe in lifetime missionary service. I believe in sending people out as long as they can to do the work because it's so expensive overseas work. So personally, I don't mean money expensive, I mean personally expensive. To learn another language just takes so long. To learn it at the level of being able to communicate to people's hearts the gospel message takes. I mean, you can learn the language so as to get your way around the tourist trap. That's not learning the language. To, to really understand the other culture at that depth is an enormous effort. Now, some languages, Swahili is relatively short and easy to learn. Others, Japanese, fifth, I had two doctors who are who's very clever people, couple, very, very clever. They spent 18 years in Japan. They would still not claim that they're really efficient in Japanese. And the mission society they went out with, the first three years, did nothing but language learning. That is how hard it is to actually crack into the Japanese mindset, which helps explain why we've had so many missionaries there and so few conversions inside Japan. It is a very, very sophisticated, complicated culture to be in. So it's personally very expensive. And, you know, to go as a missionary to Japan, very needed. And one of the doors that is completely wide open, thanks to General MacArthur. But very, very difficult mission field uh, to reach. And it's, it costs the people a lot to go and do it. Now, how do we get from one to the other, from seeing this person and seeing their abilities? Well, the first has got to do with the perceptions of the person. Now, how do you perceive people properly? To some extent, it's a slightly emotional intelligence thing that I can't explain. There are people who are good at picking people and there are bad at pe people are bad at picking people. That's just, I've, I've tried to analyze why some people keep on picking duds and other people keep picking winners and I can't quite get it. There's just an emotional intelligence that some people have about it. But it's quite often though, people looking for the wrong things. So I've got a friend who, who uh, is terrific, he's a marvellous person, but he nearly always looks for the wrong things. So he, he finds some competency that is really attractive in the person. You know, he's, he's a young man who's made a million dollars, or he's a, a first-class cricketer, or he's a... Uh, those are complete irrelevancies. Total and absolute irrelevancies. And so the man will be Christian, but what is attractive, it seems to me, to my, in my friend, is that he's worldly successful. But worldly success is no indication of the kind of person who's going to make it long-term in Christian ministry. See, Jesus warns us in the parable of the sower, doesn't he? That some seed will fall on the rocky ground and bounce around and nothing happens. Well, they're easy to pick. Some in the shallow, whose early enthusiasm would make you think this is the person. But early enthusiasm is the one that gets browned off with any persecution and opposition. So as long as people are really enthusiastic, I say praise God, keep going. But I don't, uh, I don't think this is the person yet. I want to see them get past the hard things rather than when 
they're full of enthusiasm. I want to see it when they go home and tell their parents and their parents forbid them to ever have anything to do with Christianity again. I want to see it when they fail their exams. I want to see it when, I want to see how they cope with the suffering rather than just the good times. Uh, the third soil though is the hard one, isn't it? Because this is the one that captures us all up and this has got to do with the delay in going to ministry. This has got to do with persuading people who should be in ministry to go into ministry. The thorns grow up together with the good soil and they slowly choke and it's the cares and anxieties and the joys and pleasures of this world that slowly choke the word but it's not something you're going to see straight away there are many many Christians in churches today who have accepted the word of God but are living under the materialism of Australian culture and they can't let go of it and it is slowly choking the spiritual life out of them. We, we've never been richer than we are at this moment in time. We, we have, we're the richest community in the history of civilization. We don't feel it because we all know someone who's richer than us. But never has there been, a, you know, a nation. Australia is the, it's the, it has the second highest median income in the world median not mean that is we don't have the super rich we don't have the super poor we're in a fairly narrow band but that band is the second highest band in the world and this civilization is the richest civilization in the history of the world so this is it <laughs> and we've never had so many people saying they can't afford to go into ministry <laughs> I mean, there's a, a profound disjunction at that point We've got Indian pastors who are working three days a week at pastoral ministry and not eating three days a week in order to be able to not be a burden to the churches. And we've got fabulously rich Australians who can't give up our small ambitions. To go and it, it's, it's the seductive power of materialism is enormous on our society. There's cultural factors in it too. A med student left, ministry, left medicine to go into ministry. His father came and saw me, a lovely Christian man, very fine Christian man, very angry, really angry that his son had given up medicine to go into ministry and uh, spoke to me, I think more angrily than he had ever spoken. Uh, he was a gentle, kind man, but he was angry with me. And I said, what is the problem? And he said, well, I've been in, he was a Baptist. He said, I've been in Baptist churches all my life and I've never, ever met a pastor that I respect. And I said, well, you know, I mean, you've got to be gentle when a man's being really angry. Maybe that's because fathers of med students won't let them leave medicine and go into ministry and become the kind of pastor you would respect. Just as a possibility, kind of... You know, if every time someone that you respect isn't allowed to go into ministry. He, uh, I, I have an enormous respect for him. Um, because by the end of the conversation, not only he'd calmed down, but he'd come to see the point. And uh, he was an older man than me, but he came to agree and became a great supporter of his son who went into ministry and who is doing very, very well in the ministry of the gospel. And, but it was a huge change because not only do we have dreams for ourselves, but the dreams we have that are the most profound are the dreams we have for our children. 
They're the ones that really, and we can justify them, they're not selfish, are they? They're for them and for their good. But of course, it's, it's not for every children's good, it's just for our children's good, which of course is ultimately our self-centeredness. And what are our dreams? Our dreams for our children are all these materialistic dreams, these career dreams and the like. What we're looking for are people who have denied themselves, taken up the cross and followed Jesus. It's the heart that I'm looking for all the time. The heart that comes from the knowledge of God. They have so understood the gospel that they are convinced. I'll talk of that conviction tomorrow morning at the uh, 2 Corinthians 5 passage. They're convinced and convicted by the gospel so that their character and their character of life is now going to be shaped and framed by that. The person that uh, I'm wanting to wait to see is the, is the new convert who's still full of enthusiasm. But the person who's been a Christian five, ten years, you don't have to have gone through suffering, it'll come. Yeah. So, but it's, the, it's just the, the recent convert enthusiast who I think is that's, that second soil that I want to be very wary about. And, and they do come. When, when people first get converted, yeah, whoa, they, they're going to do everything in there, you know, the, it, and I've learned to hold off. To hold off. But people who are converted, you know, have come from a Christian family and are well versed in it, I don't see you've got to go through suffering. If you have to go through suffering, I guess, you know, only in the last 18 months I've gone through any, so I'm only just fit for it now. Um, some of us have lives where there's very little suffering, and we mustn't feel guilty because we missed out uh, on the suffering um, so I want to see that their heart's conviction comes from their knowledge of God let me try another show for him take overseas missionaries I don't ever want to see missionary photographs one of the worst things that's ever happened to the world mission is the invention of the camera because it doesn't bring people onto the mission field on the basis of a heart's conviction about the truth of the gospel, but about the physical needs that they see of starving children or of little villages or of African animals or something or other. You can't photograph a person going to hell. You photograph a person sick, hungry, starving, all kinds of, but you don't actually get the hell photograph. But the reason for going out there is because of hell. The reason for going out there is because the Lord Jesus Christ is King of the universe. But you can't get a photograph of that either. Well, you're going to have photographs of the risen King. It's your conviction of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his work for the salvation of mankind that will lead you to leave all and go for the salvation of mankind. So it's the heart's conviction and, that flows through to their life rather than their easy response to needs or opportunities or whatever it is. Now, how do you find those people? Well, the key to finding them is knowing them. That, that's really what's so important, that you've got to be with people to know that that's what is making this person tick. But you also need to be preaching for it. Now, take for example the, uh, the call that we mentioned a few times. Uh, a few times. Uh, Michael Bennett has just produced a book on the call to ministry. Uh, Michael's a, a Queenslander, um, a very good Bible teacher, 
who is now in retirement, I would presume, because he's a couple of years older than me, three or four years older than me. Um, but he's just produced this book on the call to the ministry. I have not read the book, but I know Michael, so I can guess fairly accurately what he's saying in the book, which is what I agree with. That is, there's no such thing. That is, there is a thing called the call to the ministry. It's the gospel. The gospel calls all people to minister the gospel. As we receive the love of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel message, we are turned outwards from ourselves to serve other people with the Lord Jesus Christ. The person who is not serving other people hasn't yet understood the service of the Lord Jesus for them. It's, it, it comes down and goes out. Most people view church in vertical, uh, horizontal dimensions as we come together to go up. But the gospel's the reverse of that. It's Jesus comes down to send us out. And so it's the service of other people which is the indication that they have tumbled to the fact that they no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them. That, that, that change has happened. And so the gospel calls us all to minister and to minister the gospel. So I don't need a special call to minister the gospel. What I do need is the recognition of the local Christians that I am worth putting money into this exercise. It's fairly crude, I'm sorry. I'd like to give it a much more spiritual ring to it, but it's got to do with money. Uh, if I go and say to people, should I go in the mission field? Most Christians would say yes unless they're related to me or something like that. But if I say, will you pay for me to be on the mission field? Well, now I'll find out what they really believe, won't I, about it. And so it, the saying no to people who want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ is slightly more difficult. And so when people say, well, I've had a call from God, I think, well, I'm glad to hear. Good. Uh, I haven't had the call from God to put my money into you. When I get that, then I'll be happy to help you with the call you had to go. But in the meantime, you go. You've had a call from God, you should go. But I need to have this other call. And this sense of private call from God, it's a 19th century piety. Um, the call is either the call to all Christians to serve God wherever, or the call of the congregational life, the church fellowship, whoever it may be, the, the, the missionary board decision-making process, whatever, some recognition from people outside that, yes, you are the one that we should be sending out, and sending out means financing and praying for and caring for in the consequence of it. Now, how does that board, that committee, see and recognise that this person, well, like I say, you start off with that conviction's character that comes from the knowledge of God. But then you need to see the gifts that they have that they're being used in that way. That is, I don't want to see this person is a really gifted public speaker. What I want to see is this person who's a really gifted public speaker is using his gifts of speaking to commend the Lord Jesus Christ, to talk to people uh, about him, to serve the congregation that he's talking to, not to big note himself, not to build a reputation, not to be, I want to see that he does it with love. Uh, one of the ways in which I do it uh, with people has is, is always been to put them into contexts where there is no chance of big noting themselves. So my theory is 
Anyone who's not willing to teach the three-year-olds is not fit for the pulpit. Because there's no pride, there's no glory in teaching three-year-olds. It's just sheer difficult, isn't it? It's just, it's very exciting, it's very personally rewarding. But furthermore, if you can communicate with three-year-olds, there's a chance you might be able to communicate with adults. Uh, because it's, uh, you really have to learn how to understand your message with absolute clarity to get it across to a three-year-old. So I want to see that the person in love uses their gifts. So I want to see the gifts and the competencies, but it's more important how they use those gifts than that they have them. That seems to be a much more important thing to me, because that's showing the character convictions is working properly which flows out of the knowledge of God right, and then uses the gifts. The place that you see the gifts most clearly though is in ministry. So if you're not ministering with people you will not see whether they have the gifts to do the ministry or not. Uh, I've got a good friend in town who's a pastor of a local church. Every year he goes on about two, three week-long missions out into country New South Wales. Uh, a lot of the churches struggle out there for lack of resources and so he'll take 10, 20 people out to do a week-long mission out there. It's always great if people in the country towns are encouraged. It's always great if the churches are built up. It's wonderful if people get converted. But that's not really his reason. His reason is to train his people in ministry. <laughs> he finds that once they've gone out in a mission context where every one of them, and he schedules it so everyone has to give some testimony, has to, do, has to have at least one evangelistic experience in the week. Once they've done it out there, they come back to Sydney and they do it all the time back in Sydney. People who were never doing it in Sydney <laughs> will now start doing it. But furthermore, he sees the ones who have got the gifts for doing it. See, do you know if I can sing or not? You've got no idea until you hear me having a go. And within two or three notes, you will say, I'll leave it to your imagination. Right? The only way you can know whether somebody can do something, the only way they can know whether they can do something is to have a go. And so creating the opportunities in the places where you are with them having a go is the place where you and they can see yeah, I could do this. Now, I'm not expecting people to do it with absolute proficiency the first time they try. Uh, I'm willing to let people have several goes at trying. That's why a week-long mission is a terrific thing. You go door knocking with them, door after door after door, and by the end of the afternoon, you think to yourself, you know, this bloke could never sell anything. <laughs> you know, he goes, this is never going to happen. Or you can be really astonished at their ability to connect with all kinds and manner of people that you yourself find difficulty connecting with. And you'll start to think this person's a real people person. Well, people, prayer, proclamation, that, that's, tick that box, he, this, he's got that. Now let's work on the other things. But it's in the activity that you start to see the person's capacity for doing these things. And then you can work on competencies. You can always work on competencies and develop them. And you can work on which competencies will lead you to do different things. For there's a variety of ministries that people can do. 
uh, all kinds of ministries. But you need to remember that in the end, a person's passion for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will overcome some competencies. So we saw a man converted many years ago, lovely man, almost totally inarticulate. Um, he, was, he was a carpenter. Um, uh, that doesn't make him inarticulate, but he was a carpenter. And he came to university to do an arts degree which was an extraordinary thing to do, but he just had a midlife crisis and so he came to university and what do you do when you're at university and you don't know what to do? He did an arts degree. <laughs> which of course for a person who's almost inarticulate is a very strange degree to do. You know, a bit of calculus wouldn't have been hard, but arts. Anyway, he got converted, uh, which was wonderful. But following up was very difficult because he was so inarticulate. But he was really converted. His passion for the lost was overworked because he spent most of his adult life as lost. He really knew that you just have to get the gospel to these people. And he reached people with a gospel that I couldn't even start a conversation with. Just, I just didn't know how to do it. I saw him sat down with a couple of indigenous Australians for two or three hours, hardly saying a word to them, them hardly saying a word to him, because that is their culture at that point too. Me, shutting up for two or three hours in a gutter, this is an unlikelihood, right? I mean, I was born with verbal diarrhoea. I can talk under wet cement. and Even hardened cement, there's a chance. But he's just sitting there. But gradually, they turn to him and he shares with them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because they respect him because he knows how to sit and shut up for two hours. He very anyway wants to go as a missionary. The missionary society say, we can't send this man. There's no way he could, he could do it. He's hard pressed to learn English. What language are we going to send him to? We can... Anyway, he went to East Africa. He learned Swahili in 18 months. He was one of the best students for learning Swahili. What was it that got him to be able to learn Swahili? Sheer motivation. That was all. He knew that he had to learn this language. He knew these people had to hear of the Saviour. If that's what he had to do, that's what he would do. The missionary society astonished. They really took a big risk. They thought this was a silly idea. But, see, the passion of the heart enables people to do all kinds of things. So competencies are not the big factor. It's hearing what's in the ticker of the person. Now, there are limits. <laughs> Clearly, he is one of the most extraordinary cases. You know, generally, I wouldn't go down the track of risking with him, but, but uh, you generally want to see people who can do it. And people need to know they can do it and have confidence they can do it. But it's the... Now, this is why I'm a very keen advocate of MTS. Before you go off into any kind of full-time theological study, to spend a couple of years, not a couple of days, not a couple, a couple of years actually doing the ministry. You learn from that more than you will ever learn from sitting in a, in a committee room trying to make an analysis as to whether this person will or will not fit into public ministry. The person doing it learns and the people who are sponsoring them learn. It's not just that you learn whether they can or can't, you learn what kind of ministry they are suited for. Uh, a, a young man came and worked with me for a couple of years. 
at the end of it, uh, I established with him uh, a publishing house called Matthias Media. Because from the two years of working with us, it was quite clear that Tony Payne was one of the most gifted writers and the most creative media people that we'd ever come across. He could have done other ministries as well, but for various reasons, that was the ministry to do. Now, you don't know that without having come and done the work for a couple of years. Sharp theological mind, brilliant ability to communicate in the written form. Absolutely brilliant. He writes my books for me in my voice. That's, a, that's, that's an incredible thing. When I read him writing him Tony Payne's name, it doesn't sound like me at all. When he read, reads, writes a book in Philip Jensen's name, it's exactly how I would have said it if I was able to write, which I'm not. The ability to write in different people's voices, that is not your average writer. That is a very, very talented and gifted man who has published, who has created now the biggest Australian public, Christian publishing house. But you find that out through two years of working in public ministry. You find out all kinds of, most of the people who do MTS discover that their day off has to be different. Because previously you work at all kinds of things and your day off is when you catch up with your friends. But when you're in Christian ministry, you're spending all week with your Christian friends, the last thing you want to do is have a day off spending time with your Christian friends. So you want to actually get away from people. This is a very astonishing thing for them to discover. More so for their wives or their husbands, who are still in the old world where they want to spend their, their day off with their friends, and now this person wants to spend their day off avoiding knowing anybody and talking to anybody anywhere. And discovering how you as a family are going to function and whether you can function and what you chat, that comes from the practice. And I think it's far better that you do that before you go off and spend four years in, or whatever it might be, in, in Bible college or theological college, and then go out in the ministry for two or three years and then discover that you as a personality cannot cope with this at all. Or that the kind of ministry that you thought you would be really good at, you really, you know, you're hopeless at. And so MTS gives you that two years. Though I take it that the person that I want to train in MTS is a person who is committed to go. Their default position will be that they'll go to college afterwards. I don't take it, I don't invite people to come and do MTS with me who want to spend two years thinking it out. I want people who have decided they want to go in the mission field and I'm going to help them for two years. Part of my help will be to persuade them not to, because they're unsuitable. 5% or so of the people in the hundreds that I've trained over the years, I've persuaded not to go on into the course that they were heading for. But the others, they've gone on into the course that they were heading for. Um, so that's part of the deal, but I've always said, no, no, in three years' time, in my context, you're going to more college. If you're not going to more college in three years' time, you'll have to find someone else to train you. But I may persuade you not to, or you may work out not to in the course of these next couple of years. So I, I try and keep the bar very high at the entry point. This is particularly true with women. Because the men-women training regime is very different. 
Men have to give up a career, but women are much cleverer, you see, for women too. See, men have a job that they're going to go and do, and they're going to give up that job to go into ministry. Women have a job they're going to do, and they've got to give up that job to go into ministry. But they also have another thing called marriage and motherhood out there. And you might say, well, don't have men have father and fatherhood? Yes. Men, when they get married, take a wife along with them on their journey. Women, when they get married, stop the journey they're on and go on their husband's journey. That difference is a very great difference. And so for women, as they enter into ministry and into training and into these decisions, their decisions involve questions about, well, what happens if I get married? And what happens if I have children? which I've yet to have a man ask me. Now, maybe they should have, but I've yet to have one ask me. Most women won't ask me. But once I ask them, that's what's behind most of the questions that they've been asking. So that most men at 21 can think in terms of five years, 10 years, 15 years, what they'll do, what they want to do, where they hope to be. Most women in their 21 can think uh, 21, or well, mid-20s anyway, can think in terms of two years. So where do you want to be in five years? Oh, no, no, no. Well, where do you want to be in two years? Oh, I have to do this. You say, well, why? Well, because somewhere in the next two years, I hope I, met, I meet him. And then when that happens, I'll be, I'll be somewhere different. Now, this means that it's much easier to recruit women into MTS training because it's a two-year program. That fits their lifestyle perfectly, you see. I'll do MTS for two years, and then I'll review at the end of two years. Whereas the men, I'm saying, no, no, two years with me, four years at Moore College, it's a six-year program that we're talking about. And if I talk in six years, the girls say, well, no, I'm not sure I, I want to do that. I mean, I'm happy to do two years and then review. Even to go to college, our college is a four-year program. Even to go to college, they say, well, I'll do first year and then I'll think about it again. Because there is a one-year course at Moore College that you can do. So I'll go and do first year, then I'll think about it again. And then I'll... And so it's, it's, it's eating the elephant bite by bite that the women are thinking in, which is a different framework of thinking in decision-making than it is for the men to be thinking about. Um, whether I agree with this difference or disagree with this difference is not the point that I'm making now. I'm just saying it's the facts. That's, that's what it's like when you're actually dealing with lots of men and women. Uh, it's a very different schema. To my mind, one of the best trainings that any woman can have for uh, being married and a mother is MTS training. Uh, because it's one of the very few things for which a person would give up Christian ministry to do, is to be married and have children. Because it is so much like the ministry of the gospel. Being a mother is laying down your life for the sake of another. That's what it is. And it's a lifetime commitment to another person to live for their welfare at whatever cost comes to you. That's what it's like being a mother. That's what Christian ministry is about. And what happens with Christian women in marriage and uh, motherhood is that instead of having the extensive public ministry, they have an intensive private ministry. But through that intensive private ministry, they have a great public ministry. 
And while they are doing that private ministry, if God should so be so kind as to give a helpful, loving husband and children that aren't too much difficulty, they can also have a public ministry. But you can't, be, you can't bank on that one. Um, 